The story is told of a, a wealthy man who had accumulated a very rare and valuable collection of art, including some famous paintings from around the world. The man had one son who sadly had passed away as a youth. The dad had mourned his son's death deeply, and within a few months, the father also died, leaving behind his vast treasure. Well, soon after, his will was discovered, and in it was a provision that due to having no living heirs, everything in his collection was to be put up for auction. And there was also a strange, kind of strange stipulation that one particular piece in his collection had to be auctioned off first. It was a portrait of his son done back in his youth. And so on the appointed day, the auctioneer, in keeping with the man's will, did exactly what was required. And a large crowd of eager buyers had gathered there. And the auctioneer stood up and he directed their attention first to this painting of the young boy. And he began the bidding. There was silence. Nobody bid. No one really knew the boy. That piece of art had very little value that anybody could see. And in a moment, the crowd grew impatient and demanded to get to the bidding on the real works of art, the the things they had come for. And so after a long and kind of awkward silence, finally an older man who'd served as the gardener at the wealthy man's estate for many years finally spoke up and he offered to place a small bid for the portrait of the boy whom he had been very fond of. At that point in his life, a few dollars was all he could afford. But in the absence of any other bids, the family friend was able to purchase the portrait for a tiny amount. Then in a dramatic moment, the auctioneer stunned the crowd by saying, the auction is now ended. And as the people rose up in anger and clamored for an explanation, he simply pulled a copy of the will, the will of that wealthy man, and read this. All the rest of my valuable treasure shall go to the one who claimed the portrait of my son, whom I loved so dearly. Stunned, the people rushed over to the equally stunned gardener, who now was suddenly a multimillionaire, and they begged him to consider their offers, their substantial offers, for all the valuable pieces of art that he now owned. Well, I don't know if that story is true or not, But what I do know is this, it illustrates a very important truth, that if you take the Son, you have it all. If you take the Son of God, you inherit all of the Father's riches, all the treasure of His vast kingdom estate that has been reserved for you if you have the Son. And that is exceedingly good news, amen? And good news is what this series of sermons in the book of Romans is all about. So take your Bible or your device and go to Romans chapter 1 in the New Testament. And we're going to take our first steps together as we begin this ascent, as it were, up this majestic and historic mountain, the Mount Everest of Scripture, one man called it, the book of Romans. And I want to ask you to read aloud with me this opening passage, first seven verses. Would you read it aloud with me? It's on your outline there, your study guide. Let's read it together. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, 
called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the word of the Lord. And Father, now through your Holy Spirit, help me to explain the amazing, powerful truth that is in this passage, this introduction to this letter, by the power of your Spirit, in Christ's name, amen. Well, the theme of this opening section of the book of Romans is the gospel of God. And what we see here, I believe, are five aspects of that gospel that I'm alliterating and making into my points today. We're going to see the preacher of the gospel, the promise of the gospel, the person of the gospel, the proclaiming of the gospel, and the power of the gospel. And uh, as a preacher, I don't always use alliteration, but this passage lent itself to it so easily that I just couldn't resist, so I, I hope that'll help you remember the main truths that we're going to be uh, exposed to here tonight. Before we get deeper into it, did you notice that those seven verses are actually one long sentence? One sentence. And for an opening greeting of a letter, this would have been kind of unusual in that day. They were not long-winded in their letter writing. Certainly it was unusual for Paul. And I think this long greeting would have been a heads up, like, hey, something is afoot here. You, want to, you might want to just really tune in and give your full and undivided attention to what follows. It was typical, though, for a writer to begin a letter by introducing himself or herself, and that's what we see here. So first, the preacher of the gospel, whose name was Paul, the writer of this letter, Paul the Apostle. And we know quite a lot about this guy, right? If you've been in church for any period of time or been around new life, he was a Jewish man who lived in the first century who uh, evidently came of age while he was living in the nation of Israel, and he was brought up in the Jewish faith, in Judaism. So this man, Paul, who was known earlier in his life as Saul, Saul of Tarsus, he was a, a zealous man, he was a very ambitious young man, and he had his sights set on some pretty big things. He dedicated himself to his studies, and he kind of rose up through the ranks, and eventually he became one of a, a pretty elite religious group of that day known as the Pharisees. Saul was a contemporary of Jesus. He lived at the same time. Their lives overlapped. And when he found out that that young, upstart, Galilean preacher from Galilee who seemed to be undermining Judaism and was hammering the Pharisees for being hypocrites, when he heard about him, it just made his blood boil. 
And so he joined his cohorts there among the Pharisees in condemning Jesus and his teaching and his little band of followers there. After Jesus was killed, the Bible records that Saul started going after his followers, seeking them out, rounding them up to imprison them, in some cases to even execute them, put them to death, all in an effort to just stamp out this new Christian movement before it got much traction. But then, as you know, there was that day, the day that changed Saul's life, right? Changed everything. He was on his way to the city of Damascus. He had letters of authorization from the authorities authorizing him to round up even more Christians and imprison them. And on that road, Saul of Tarsus had a personal encounter with the risen Jesus who shows up, it says in Acts chapter 9, in a, in a flash of blinding light and knocked him off of his horse, flattened him on the ground, and then Jesus told him that he had plans for him. And that changed everything. And just think about that for a moment. You know, one minute you're hell-bent on crushing what you see as a rebellion against the establishment. And the next moment, the dead founder of that rebellion shows up As you're clip-clopping down the road, he confronts you, asks you why you are resisting him, and then he enlists you to join in his rebellion. And then he leaves you blind for a few days, just kind of to put an exclamation point on his message. Well, you got to know that that experience redirected the whole course of Saul's life. It changed who his friends were, who he hung out with. It, It took his ambitions and kind of turned them all on their head. Set him on an entirely new course, and even his name got changed to Paul. And so now, after a few years of carrying out his assignment, his mission from Jesus, and we should say at great cost, Paul writes this letter to followers of Jesus who are living in the city of Rome, and he hopes to visit them soon, right? And now, he's, he's been a warrior for years. He's battle-hardened. He's endured much for the sake of his master, his Lord Jesus. He's preached Jesus' message all over the Middle East. And now he wants to to, uh, advance the gospel westward. He's got Spain in his crosshairs. He's heading for Spain, but he's looked at the map. He has his GPS. He sees that Rome is on the way to Spain. And he knows there's a church there, a body of Christian believers. So so he writes them this letter to prepare them for his visit. Hey, I'm coming. And he's hoping they're going to kind of, you know, house him for a few days and he'll have some ministry there and then send him on his way to Spain. And, And in this letter, he wants to lay out his message in detail. And so he opens the letter with an introduction. And it's interesting to me that of all the terms he could have used, he decides to describe himself in three ways to these people. He says, I'm a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be a, what? An apostle, and set apart for the gospel of God. So a servant, an apostle. An apostle refers to a very small and select group of men who were chosen by Jesus to speak for him, to speak on his behalf, and then were sent out by Jesus to spread his message. That's what apostle means, a sent one. So he says, I'm a servant of Christ, I'm a sent one on mission 
for Jesus. And he says, I was set apart for the gospel. And what you kind of see as he introduces himself, you can see there's, there's another actor here. There's somebody lurking in the background. Can, can you see that from the language? Called to be an apostle. Called by who? Set apart for the gospel. Set apart by who? And, and you get the, the notion that, that God is in the picture here, behind the scenes, calling this man, setting him apart, giving him an assignment to go and proclaim his good news. And for me, as I read this section over and over and over again, that first designation, servant, the word servant, kept leaping out at me. And I researched and found there, there were six different Greek words for servant that Paul could have used here to convey this idea that I'm a servant of Christ, and he chose the strongest one he could find. It's the word doulos. Would you say that? Doulos. How many of you have heard that Greek word before? Doulos. I've got a friend who has a t-shirt, a black t-shirt that says doulos on the front, and on the back it says slave. He said it generates a lot of looks and conversations as he goes about his business during the day. And that translation is correct. A doulos servant was not, a, not an employee, you know, not a, not a hired household servant who could come and go as they please or quit if they didn't like something. A doulos was a slave, someone who had been bought, who was purchased, who'd given up all their rights to own anything in their life, having been purchased by a master, a kurios is the Greek word. A doulos's life was not his own life. He belonged to somebody. He was owned. And Paul opens his letter and says, I'm a doulos of Christ, a bond slave. One of his favorite self-designations. He could have led with, hey, I'm an apostle. I'm one of the elite. But he leads with, I'm Jesus' slave. I'm owned. Now in that culture, in the Roman culture, there were two kinds of slaves. There were stock slaves and there were ideal slaves. A stock slave was a person who had kind of a contractual relationship with his master and he often had to be told what to do every, every moment of the day. You know, what do you want me to do now? Okay, I got that done. What do you want me to do now? Okay, I got that done. What's next? What's next? There was really no emotional component to his relationship with his master. He, it was just business. Just business. That servant did not receive a card on his birthday. He wasn't thanked for the things that he did. It was just business. That's a stock slave. But an ideal slave was one who was actually loved by his master, and it was reciprocal. This kind of a slave, knew what he, his master wanted. He didn't have to be directed every moment of the day because he had learned to think like his master. He knew what was on his heart and mind. His desire was to please his master and serving his master actually brought the ideal slave great joy. Even though he was technically bought and paid for as a slave, in day-to-day -day life, this one would often feel more like a part of the family, like a Son, even. I believe this was no doubt the picture Paul had in his mind here as he introduces himself. I'm a slave, he says, of Jesus, but that's not a demeaning title to me. I don't feel diminished by that. In fact, I'm honored to be owned by my master, the Lord 
Jesus Christ. He paid for me with his blood. What master does that? And so, serving him is a joy. And by the way, there's a sense in which all of us who know Jesus are his doulos, his slaves. That notion may be repugnant to you. But it's true. And Paul affirms this even later in his greeting when he writes, To you who are called to what? To belong to Jesus Christ. Does not the Bible teach that all Christian believers were bought with a price and that we are not our own? 1 Corinthians 6.19 So yes, we too belong to another and we are called to serve him gladly. And interestingly, what we're going to see in Romans is that from a spiritual perspective, actually, everybody on the planet is a slave or a servant to something. Romans, we'll see, speaks of two slaveries. Slavery to sin or slavery to righteousness. Slavery to self or slavery to Jesus Christ. Romans contends that everybody is a slave to one or the other. There is no neutrality here. Everyone will serve something or someone. We know that American Christians in particular love talking about freedom. We just sang about it, right? And it's true that Christ Jesus has set his people free. Praise God for that. But free to do what? Free to do anything we want. Free to live in sin. Free to live for self. Free to follow our own agenda. I'm telling you, that's not the biblical concept of what it means to have been set free The biblical concept is this, that we have been set free from one master in order to gladly serve another who is gracious towards us and has mercy on us. There is no other option. In our culture, the rise of the autonomous self, you know what I'm talking about? That notion that I'm the master of my fate and I'm independent of anybody else, I do what I want. That notion is actually not true freedom. It's just repackaged slavery to sin. It was R.C. Sproul who said, Paul had learned that man is only truly free when he becomes a slave of Jesus Christ. Man is only truly free when he becomes a slave of Jesus Christ. That's the person who knows the royal liberation that only Jesus can bring. So, the preacher of the gospel, Paul the apostle, the slave of Jesus The called apostle set apart for the gospel of God. The preacher, second, the promise of the gospel. The promise of the gospel. He writes, I was set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel that he, what? Promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, which is the Old Testament. So the promise of the gospel is it was in the Old Testament. It says the gospel of God. Note note that. It's God's gospel. It's God's good news. He owns it. He's the originator of it. Amen? He designed it. This gospel message wasn't something cooked up by Paul or or anybody else for that matter. He makes that clear in Galatians chapter 1. But God did set Paul apart to preach God's gospel. It says it's a promised gospel. That means that this message that Paul's about to lay out in the next X number of chapters had been around for a while. It wasn't new. It wasn't a novelty. It was old. And one reason Paul says this is because he knew that that among his readers, 
in Rome, there was a contingent of people who were skeptical of new things. Many people in that culture were suspicious of novelties and fads and things that are here today and gone tomorrow. Our culture could take some cues from that, right? But Paul says this gospel of God was promised in times past. It's not new. It's ancient. Even to those, I mean, it's ancient to us, but even to to those in the first century, it was ancient. He says it was given by the prophets, like Moses and Elijah and David and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Habakkuk. These men wrote, he says, and spoke about the good news, the gospel, even if at times they didn't fully comprehend what they were writing down. See 1 Peter 1, verses 10 and 11. Sometimes they didn't, they wrote it down and they went back, stood back and said, I have no idea what that's talking about. I'm not going to get too deep into this because we've done sermons on it before, but just know there are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that looking back, we can see we're referring in some way to the Messiah who was to come. There were types, there were foreshadowings, there were allusions, there were veiled references, and there were clear predictions. And when Jesus eventually did arrive on the scene, he confirmed this, right? He claimed that the Old Testament was about him. Like in John 5, 39, talking to the Pharisees, he said, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness of me. Saying the Old Testament is primarily about me. That's what Jesus was saying. And walking along that road to Emmaus with those two pretty confused fellas, It says in Luke 24, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Later they said their hearts burned within them as they heard Jesus explain the scriptures. How would you like to be taught the Old Testament by Jesus? The Old Testament is filled with the promise of the good news. If you have the right lenses on, you'll see them everywhere. I love how one writer put it. I find my Lord in the Bible wherever I chance to look. He is the theme of the Bible, the center and heart of the book. He is the Rose of Sharon. He is the Lily Fair. Whenever I open my Bible, the Lord of the book is there. He at the book's beginning gave to the earth its form. He is the Ark of Shelter bearing the brunt of the judging storm. The burning bush of the desert, the, building of, the budding of Aaron's rod. Whenever I look in the Bible, I see the Son of God. The ram upon Mount Moriah, the ladder from earth to sky, the scarlet cord in the window and the serpent lifted on high. The smitten rock in the desert, the shepherd with staff and crook. The face of my Lord I discover wherever I look in the book. He is the seed of the woman, the Savior virgin born. He is the Son of David whom men rejected with scorn. His garments of grace and beauty, the stately Aaron deck, yet he is a priest forever after Melchizedek. Lord of eternal glory, whom John the Apostle saw, light of the golden city, bloody lamb without spot or flaw, bridegroom coming at midnight, for whom the virgins look. Wherever I open my Bible, I find my Lord in the book. So beautiful and so true. And that leads me to a third feature of this gospel message that Paul preached. 
preacher of the gospel, the promise of the gospel. Number three, the person of the gospel. In verse three, it said, it is the gospel concerning God's son. In verse four, it names him, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus is the person of the gospel. Yeah, amen. I've heard it said that the gospel is God's good news about a person and about a plan. And I agree, the person is Jesus. Jesus is the good news. Jesus is the gospel. Would you say that with me? Jesus is the gospel. Listen, Christianity is not a list of rules that you have to try and keep to make God happy. That's not what Christianity at its core is about. Yes, God has rules called the law of God, the Ten Commandments, summarized in the two great commandments, right? The ten are summarized in two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets are summed up in those two commandments, Jesus said. But you know what? The Bible is clear that in the eyes of God, not one human being has fully and completely kept all of those commandments their entire life, not one. In fact, it's God's law, really, that sits in judgment on all of humanity because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God revealed in His law, His holy law. So for mankind, the law of God is not good news. It doesn't sound good if you understand its purpose. It is good, the law is good, and the law is true. It's binding upon all people, but it's not really good news to human ears that God has a holy law, what is good news is that a person came to earth to keep God's law where we couldn't. What is good news is that that perfect law-keeping man not only lived God's law for us, but then he died for us too. He was crucified in our place to serve our sentence, right? The penalty that God's law requires for lawbreakers. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through a person, Jesus Christ our Lord. So we can see Paul states clearly Jesus Christ is the good news for all of mankind. And this treasure is for those who have him, who have the Son, the primary person of the gospel. And Paul mentions three facts here about Jesus in this one concise statement of the gospel. Verses 3 and 4 might have been a common saying of that day or an early Christian creed. And Paul quotes it here or maybe adapts it for his purposes. Go back to verse 1, the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, now this part, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now that could be a whole sermon right there. We see the person's identity, we see his humanity, and we see his deity, don't we? 
We see his identity, God's son, it says, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We see his humanity, descended from David according to the flesh. We see his deity, declared to be the son of who? Son of God, with power by his resurrection from the dead. Person of interest in the gospel has a name and a title, doesn't he? His name is Jesus. In the Greek, it's Yesu. In Hebrew, it's Yeshua. It's Yeshua, which means in Hebrew, Yahweh saves. Yahweh was the personal name of the God of Israel. Yeshua meant Yahweh saves. Now, other boys, other Jewish boys were named Yeshua. I mean, Joshua. The name Joshua is a derivative or a variant of that name. But other boys were not referred to as Christ. That's not a name. As Dr. Galay reminded us a few weeks ago, Christ was not Jesus' last name. His name was probably Jesus Bar-Joseph, Jesus son of Joseph. Christ was a title that means anointed one or Messiah. And that refers to the promise in the Old Testament that one day a Messiah would come, a descendant of King David would come and sit on his throne and rule the nations from his throne in Israel. See 2 Samuel 7, 16. So Christ was Jesus of Nazareth, the most common title in the Bible. Christ. Jesus the Christ might be better read. The second most common title for Jesus was what? Lord. Lord. Kyrios in the Greek. Master. Master. Someone who owns slaves. So Jesus, Messiah, the Master, God the Son. Human, yes. Fully human, a man. The man. The most perfect man ever. Do you remember the first man? I mean the very first man. Adam. Tested in the garden. Failed to represent us well before God. Succumbed to the wiles of the serpent, of the devil. But the second man, Jesus, the second Adam he's referred to, the second Adam also was tested in a garden. And in that moment of testing, he performed perfectly. Right? Thy will be done. Crushing, crushing the head of the serpent instead of yielding to his enticements. Jesus was the perfect man, descended from King David. Yes? Yeah, check it out yourself. Check his lineage out in Matthew chapter 1, which traces his lineage back through his stepdad Joseph and shows that his great 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 grandfather was David. For God to keep his promise in the gospel, the Messiah had to be from the line of David, and Jesus was. And he was also promised to be the anointed one, Messiah. The Christ, the king who would come and rule forever. But that proposes a problem with Jesus, right? Because Jesus was executed. Solution? Raise him from the dead. Never to die again. Paul here says that Jesus being raised to life by the Holy Spirit showed him to be the Son of God in an unmistakably powerful way. So the person of the gospel is none other than Jesus Christ our Lord, fully human, descended from King David, crucified for our sins, but also fully God, 
and shown to be his son, his only begotten or uniquely begotten son by his resurrection from the grave. And now he is the living, risen master of all who are called by him to salvation. So having highlighted the promise of the gospel and the person of the gospel, Paul then returns to his own unique role in proclaiming the gospel. His credentials, I guess you could say. He wanted to give the Roman church his credentials. Remember, he's headed for Spain. This is new virgin territory for the gospel. He knows he's going to be asking this church at Rome for support, including financial support, to get there to Spain. So he underscores his credentials, really his divine commissioning from God. He's on a mission from God, number four, to proclaim the gospel. This is Paul's mission. He was a missionary. What do missionaries do? Well, good ones proclaim the gospel. And here it is, verse 4. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. That's an interesting phrase. To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. What's he saying? He's saying, the Lord Jesus Christ, my master, has commissioned me, me, a former persecutor of his people. He's commissioned me to be a chosen instrument of his, an apostle, a proclaimer of his gospel to the Gentiles. And I believe he felt blown away by this, don't you? Like, he chose me. I hated him. I I killed his people. Why me, Jesus? Why me? I hated you. I don't deserve this. That's why he calls it a grace. And I see two big purposes here for Paul being given this grace of being an apostle. Really, they became his motivations for proclaiming it. He proclaimed it first that Jesus would have for himself a faith-filled and, yes, faithful people. A trusting people who are also trustworthy. The obedience of faith, he says. I'm 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 calling people to the obedience of faith. You see, true faith produces obedience. A little later on, he's going to say, the just will live by faith. Our friend, Dr. Goulet, who I mentioned, told me this week that the Greek word for faith, which is pistis, pistis is the Greek word for faith, could most accurately be translated with the word allegiance. To put your faith in Jesus is to give him your full allegiance. It's no mere mental assent to some facts about Jesus. No, it's offering yourself to him. So Paul is saying here, I proclaim the gospel so that Jesus will have a people who have sworn allegiance to him as as their master. And their daily life will reflect that. The obedience of faith. We talked about this last week. Maybe they don't wear a Dulos t-shirt, a Slave of Christ t-shirt, but they don't have to because it's evident in their priorities, in their activities, in their decisions, in their interactions at work, at home, in worship, in service. That's how true slaves of Jesus live. You see, the gospel rightly believed produces obedience can transform a crusty, 
angry, hard, rebellious heart into a soft, moldable, grateful, forgiving, captured, devoted heart. Paul knew that very well from experience, didn't he? The proclaiming of the gospel was also secondly motivated and aimed towards Jesus' name or his reputation being magnified and expanded throughout the world. That's what caused Paul's, you know, the adrenaline to kick in, his blood pressure to rise, the thought of that Jesus would be famous in all the world. He was a missionary preacher of the gospel, wasn't he? We're going to see in this letter to the Romans, his heart for Jesus to be magnified among the nations, among peoples of all kinds, so that ultimately Jesus would have a multi-ethnic people. He would be Lord of a multi-colored, multilingual family of redeemed worshipers. That's what we see in the end of the story in Revelation chapter 5. Jesus would be seen as the great reconciler who reconciles sinful people to God, a holy God, yes, but also diverse people to each other under his lordship. I mean, what other person can pull that off? Bridging the gap both vertically and horizontally. That's Jesus. Paul's mind, there was only one person who could do that, and he had met him on that road. Well, finally, let's just touch briefly on something that we're going to talk a lot more about in the upcoming weeks in this letter to the Romans, which is the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel expressed and manifested in many ways, but here I'm going to talk about the power to change our identity. Verse 7, to all those in Rome, it's a long introduction, wasn't it? To all those in Rome who are loved by God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So finally, it took Paul a while, but he finally gets to the greeting. (laughs) One commentator said, Paul can hardly even say hello without preaching the gospel. He's so consumed by it. And here... As he addresses his letter to these believers in Rome, he can't help himself. He feels compelled, even in this greeting, to acknowledge the power of the gospel to change lives. Do you see it? It's like, to you people that I'm writing to, think about it. The gospel declares, you who have given your heart's allegiance to Jesus, that your core identity has been changed by God. You are first loved by God. See that? Loved by Him. Is that just those believers at Rome? Are they the only ones who are loved by God? No. All of his people throughout all ages, loved by God unconditionally. That's how he loves, purposefully, relentlessly. One guy that I was in conversation with this week says, recklessly loved by God. He's committed to your highest good now and forever. That's love. Loved by God, and he says, called to be saints, holy ones. You say, me? Yeah. Chosen by God, set apart for him. Not not just invited, but effectively called. And then grace and peace, he says, grace. God has lavished abundant favor upon you. You are graced. I like to use that term, graced. Graced. God's given you things you don't deserve. 
God's given you things you haven't earned. Forgiveness of all your sins if you're in Christ, a right standing before God, the very righteous record of Jesus Christ himself given to you as a gift. The Holy Spirit, eternal life, a new heart that beats in sync with the heart of God. Loves what he loves. An eternal family to be a part of. The word of God. The promise of ultimate healing. And participation in an eternal kingdom that will be so glorious that one Bible writer says, Eyes have not seen, neither have ears heard, nor has the human mind conceived of all that God has promised for those who love him. The gospel is good news of grace. The grace of God. And if you take the sun, you'll have it all. All the treasure, all the riches of God. Grace, and then he says what? Grace and peace. Grace is the root of the gospel, and peace is the fruit of the gospel. What he means by that is that we who are in Christ are now at peace with God. A treaty was signed in blood. Hostility between a holy God and sinful, rebellious mankind was ended through Jesus Christ. And as his purchased, beloved, slave, son, saints, for all of us, we are now at peace with God. Grace and peace. And so this is how the letter begins. We're in for a fantastic journey together through this incredible book of Romans. Because there may be some in the room here who are not yet truly saved, I want to go over the Romans, what's known as the Romans Road plan of salvation with you. And also because there may be saved people in the room who want to help, help other people have faith in Christ and be saved too. I want to equip you. I want you to have this in your toolbox. Okay? How about if you read this out loud with me? Is it on the back of your outline? should be. Let's read these scriptures aloud together. Just the scriptures. We see the references, but let's read just the scriptures. Ready? Here we go. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. We're going to have a memory verse each week during our time in Romans. This week, I I, I want to challenge us to memorize the Romans road. So the first one, easy one for this week, Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. I'm going to encourage you, if you're in a small group, to repeat that in your small group this week. If you're a dad, if you're a father, spiritual leader in your home, Gather your family around the dinner table or breakfast table or whatever and say this aloud three times together as a family. Lead your family spiritually in this way. Romans 3.10 for this week. 
I want to finish by asking you a very important question. May I? That was a question. May I? Has there been a time, can you point to a time and a place in your life where you know that God brought you to the point where you said, I need a Savior. And I'm choosing Jesus Christ to be my Savior. Has that ever happened for you? Are you 100% sure that you know that you know that you know that you know that you belong to God, that you've been purchased by Christ, that you're one of His, that you are saved? There's no more important question that I could ever ask anybody, right? Your eternal destiny rests on your answer to that question. If you're not sure of that and you want to be and you sense God calling you, I would say to you, this could be your time and this could be your place. And I want to encourage you Pray a prayer. And I've written out a prayer on the back of your study guide. I, I would encourage you to pray this prayer along with me. And maybe you just want to say, whisper, yes. Yes, Lord, I agree. Yes, yes, I agree. That's me. So I'm going to pray. And I encourage you to pray along with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of life and also for the gift of the opportunity to hear your good news proclaimed. I humbly admit to you that I know I am a sinner and have fallen far short of what you require. In my life, I've broken your holy law many times. I hate my sins, and I turn away from them. I long to be free of them and to be forgiven by you. I've heard your good news about Jesus. And in this moment, like right now, I am choosing to receive your love for me by believing that Jesus Christ is your son and that he died on the cross in my place in order to save me from my sin. I also believe that he rose again to life and is with you even now in heaven. Because of what Jesus has done for me, I call upon you now to save me from my sins. I transfer my full trust and allegiance to my new master, Jesus Christ, and him alone. For his sake, please have mercy on me. Forgive me of all my sins and give me eternal life and your Holy Spirit, for these come only from you. Please. Give me your strength to follow Jesus as Lord of my life from this moment on because I now declare that Jesus is Lord and today I acknowledge that he is Lord of me. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Anybody pray that for the first time along with me? Anybody just pray that for the first time? Yeah, yeah, two, anybody else just pray that for the first time? Three? Yeah, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. If that came from your heart, if that came from your heart, then Jesus saves you because of your faith. He's the only one who can.
And so I want to thank God for that. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for winning some more people to yourself. Even tonight, on a Saturday night at New Life Church, a few more declaring their allegiance to you, Jesus. Like we pray, give them the strength to follow you the rest of their days. Yes, they will have setbacks, but you will take them by the hand and walk with them through everything. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.